Our scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 1, and the first six verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. I have the pleasure, the privilege, and all the nice things to say about our speaker. Now, I I feel like I am introducing a foreign missionary, a retired foreign missionary, uh, because he spent so many years uh, doing missionary work in a, a, where was it? It's a little south of here, four-letter word, starts with O. That's all I'll say, right? But they need Jesus down there just as much as anyone else, okay? And and so he did the dirty work. He he was there and, and ministered faithfully. Uh, and that's where uh, his mission, uh, mission, yeah, his mission, uh, where ministry started there. Um, if you read our e-news, you probably got uh, a little bit more information as far as being down there and uh, starting in Mineral City and then moving over to the Chicago area and then back to the Cleveland area. And uh, so I am grateful for all of that because it placed him where he was for uh, Julie to be... Uh, brought on staff at a camp in Ohio where I happened to go and be uh, working uh, for a weekend and met her, all right? So all this other stuff didn't happen, then we don't have Julie. This is where you say, oh, no, right? And we wouldn't have Kenzie or Ryder. And this is where you're like, oh, right? right? But uh, it has been a privilege uh, to be a part of this family, and uh, it's also been a privilege uh, to be able to sit under his preaching uh, a number of times when we go and visit before uh, he retired, and then to be down there for his final message as well. And, uh, but uh, the good news is the message doesn't stop when the pastor retires, amen? Uh, the gospel is living and continuing uh, even still. And so I'm grateful that uh, my father-in-law was able uh, and willing to uh, accept this invitation to come and uh, present God's word to us here this morning. And so, uh, Father-in-law, David, would you please come and share with us from God's word. Well, after that introduction, all I can say is go Buckeyes. Oh, well, welcome everybody. Would you grab a Bible and open it to the book of Romans? Now, if you don't know where Romans is, it's right after the book of Acts in the New Testament and just before the book of 1 Corinthians. And while you're turning to Romans, I'm going to keep talking. I've been looking forward to sharing this message with you ever since my son-in-law, Chris, asked me to fulfill the pulpit while Mark and his wife are getting some much-deserved R&R. You know, there's nothing I'd rather do then be with you here today, except maybe be with Mark and Amanda, especially when they go to Israel. (laughs) 
that has been on my bucket list for some time. Now, I've entitled this message, Reflections on Retirement, for one simple reason. It's because I want to share with you some of the lessons I've learned since I retired from pastoral ministry in August of 2020. And if you remember, that was right in the middle of COVID, so obviously things weren't normal. But I've learned a lot in these first few years that I think are worth passing on to you. And what I want to do is I want to begin by giving you a couple of the benefits, and then I want to talk to you about two of the drawbacks. The first benefit of being retired is the freedom to do whatever I want to do. Now that I'm retired, I can sleep in in the morning, enjoy breakfast, brew my favorite cup of coffee, listen to my favorite music, and check out what's playing on Netflix and Amazon Prime. I mean, it's a pretty laid-back, sometimes lazy lifestyle. But I'm learning to like it. In fact, I like it a lot. Uh, another benefit is that I'm free to read the Bible just for me. You see, when I was a pastor, I was always getting ready for the next sermon, and that meant reading the Bible not just for me, but for the members of God's family in Avon Lake. And it's been a joy just to allow God to speak to me through his word day after day. But sadly, along with the benefits, there's also been a couple of drawbacks to retirement. I've discovered that it's easy to allow the mundane things in life to become the main things in my life. For example, paying the bills and mowing the lawn and shoveling the snow and numerous other daily chores have become the focus of my day. You know, when I was pastoring, those were things that my wife and I had to do together. And honestly, I don't know how we did it all. But now it's easy to allow those things just to fill up my days. And this leads me to my final point about retirement. I've discovered that it's more challenging to live the Christian life now that I'm retired than it was when I was pastoring. When I served as pastor at Anchor Church in Avon Lake, Ohio, I often told our congregation that I was paid to be good and they were good for nothing. <laughs> now that I'm retired, I really am good for nothing for the first time in a long time. And to be honest, I'm finding it a bit challenging. And while I desire to remain faithful, there are times that I find myself slipping into spiritual complacency. And what I've discovered is that I need to rely on the gospel just as much today as when I first got saved. Could I say that again to you? I need to rely on the gospel just as much today as when God first saved me. And by the way, so do you. Thanks for that amen. And that's the main point that I want to make this morning. So let's go back to the book of Romans and let me set up the rest of this message with a question. If someone were to ask you, what's the most important letter you ever received, how would you respond? I want you to think about that for a moment. Because I know most of you don't write and receive letters anymore, right? With Facebook and FaceTime and Twitter, that's pretty much how we communicate these days. But think back with me for a moment. For those of you that remember sending or receiving a letter, what's the most important letter you ever received? You know, some of you might remember receiving a marriage proposal in a love letter. Or maybe you got a birth announcement in a letter, or maybe a draft notice, or a letter from the IRS that you're gonna be audited. Has anyone gotten a court summons or a call to jury duty? You know, sometimes letters contain good news and sometimes bad news. Maybe you got a job offer or a job transfer. Well, today, we're going to briefly look at what I consider to be the greatest letter ever written. And that's not an overstatement. It's impossible to overestimate the influence this letter has had on people since it's been written. Romans is life-giving and life-changing. And believe me, if you read it 
and you really grasp the message in it, it will make a dramatic difference in your life. Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh, Pastor Dave, I've already read Romans. I've been through it many times. I thought it was pretty hard to understand, and sometimes it was a little bit boring. Why Romans? Well, let me tell you why. For one thing, the greatest Christian leaders for the last 2,000 years have maintained that Romans is the most important theological book ever written. St. Augustine said that in Romans, all the shadows of his doubt were dispelled. John Calvin spoke of Romans as his entrance to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Martin Luther said it was the most important piece of literature in the New Testament and that it was impossible to read, study, ponder, or meditate on it too much. He called the central thesis of Romans, you know what it is? Justification by faith alone, the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. In fact, many well-known Christian theologians and teachers have said if they had to spend the rest of their lives on a deserted island with only one book of the Bible to read, Romans would be their first choice. And you know what? If you ask me that question, what book of the Bible I'd want on a deserted island, it would be Paul's letter to the Romans. The book of Romans is packed with powerful and practical truth that is relevant for all of us who are gathered here today. John Calvin once said that if a person understands Romans, they have a road open to them to help them understand the entire Bible. And I want to tell you, as I've read it, it's not just a road to understanding, it's a road map for everyday living. It's truth for your mind, but it's also something that will touch and transform your heart. And I really can't say enough about this book. It has changed history, and it has changed me personally. It was through reading Romans that God revealed to me my need and his solution for my problem. Would you indulge me for just a couple minutes as I share my story? Thank you, that one person. <laughs> I, I remember back in college, that wasn't too long ago, when I really began asking spiritual questions and searching for answers. Like, is the Bible really true? Can you say it honestly, that it contains reliable and relevant truth for today? Or do you have to just check your brains at the door when you come into the church? And I was puzzled and troubled that so many of my friends would think logically and rationally about everything else and then close their minds and behave as if they were blind when it came to following Christ. And for some time I did that too, until finally I got really desperate. Looking back now, I thank God that I was raised in a Christian home with the nurture of godly parents in a conservative Christian environment. I remember making a commitment to Christ at an early age, but by the time I reached high school, my faith didn't really mean all that much to me. I kept playing the game, but nothing had changed inside me. I was still the same person with the same set of problems. And during my college days, the experiences that had given me a sense of belonging now seemed so shallow and empty. I began to question everything. The rules that had once given me a sense of security led me to rebel against God and everything I had been taught. The Christian school I attended became more of a prison than a place to get an education. You see, I had been told all my life that God loved me, and I guess I sort of believed that Jesus died for me, but I also was told that I could lose my salvation if I messed up bad enough. If, for example, I would die at night with any unconfessed sin in my life, I could go to hell and be there forever with no hope. And the implications of that haunted my heart. I couldn't understand why my classmates could be so calm and confident, especially since they broke the rules more than I did. You see, I was basically a good kid on the outside, but on the inside, it was a different story. 
And I was fearful I was going to die and be separated from God forever. I can recall being anxious a lot. I thought to myself, what if I really mess up some Saturday night and Jesus came back before I could confess my sin and ask for forgiveness? Worse yet, what if I didn't remember all my sins that I had committed? I mean, there were so many ways that I could lose my salvation. And while I was going through this internal agony, I began reading Paul's letter to the Romans, and I discovered I couldn't put it down. I would read one section and pause and think about it, and I wondered why I had never seen or heard this before. Now, I want you to listen to me. To my knowledge, not one of the pastors I had sat under since childhood had ever taught through the book of Romans. And reading through Romans brought about a revolution in my life and the solution to my deepest needs and problems. I remember sitting on the floor in the school chapel and I could sense God's spirit sitting next to me and he was speaking to me through his word. As I turned each page, I came face to face with God's amazing grace. And as I read through the first few chapters of Romans, I got a clear picture of my sinful heart. It was almost as if Paul had x-ray vision and he could see the me that I thought only I could see. And finally, one day, feeling hopeless and helpless to do anything about myself, I decided I was going to skip chapel and read some more of Romans. Now, I have been reading right up through Romans chapter 8. I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. When I reached the first verse of Romans 8, it was like a loud bell began ringing in my brain. And Paul said, you know the words? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when I read those words, suddenly my spiritual eyes were open in a way they had never been before. The Holy Spirit came to me, and those words, no condemnation, stood out from the rest of the chapter. And when finally God enabled me to embrace his gift of grace through faith, I experienced peace. I knew that the Bible was true. I knew that Jesus was God's one and only son, that he had lived a sinless life and died for my sins on the cross. And because he was raised from the dead, praise God, on Easter Sunday, I was now forgiven. I was given right standing with God and I was free. And all of a sudden, the blinders came off, and I could see clearly, and God flooded my heart with a sense of his love and forgiveness and acceptance. And that moment, I knew I was saved without a doubt, not because of who I was, but despite of who I was. And because of what Christ had done for me, I knew I was loved completely and secure for eternity. But you know, that was the, only the beginning. As my understanding of Romans grew, my motivation for living the Christian life began to change. Instead of obeying because I was afraid of losing my salvation, I wanted to obey because God had already made a way for me to be saved. And along with the bondage and guilt I had been living in because of sin came real freedom because I knew that I was forgiven and given right standing with God. And I got to tell you, I've never been the same since. Now, now, let me just be open and honest with you. I still struggle with sin. Do you? But I know I'm forgiven, and I know I'm righteous in God's eyes. And I hope this doesn't sound arrogant. I know I'm going to go to heaven. And every time I go back to Romans, I find greater freedom and power for living. And I think I must have experienced what some, to some degree what Paul experienced when he wrote this letter. Paul, like no other, seems to have a firm grip on the gospel of God's grace. And in a real sense, the reason I'm a Christian and the reason I became a pastor is because of the book of Romans. No other book has had such a powerful impact on my life as this one. And that's why I wanted to share my story with you this morning. And I just thank you for listening. You know, I began my spiritual journey in a large part because of the book of Romans. I have taught through this book several times over the years. I had the privilege of teaching through Romans at a Baptist Bible college in Ukraine. And since I've retired, I've returned to it again and again. 
And I decided the best thing I could do is share this with you. And uh, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. So would you just bow your heads with me? I'm not going to be too long this morning, but would you just bow with me and let's pray and ask God to speak to us today. Heavenly Father, I know I'm inadequate to teach today, but I know that you have so much to say through your word. And so I pray that over the next few moments, as we look into Romans, you would challenge us and change us so that we'd walk away knowing that we're saved and knowing that you've given us the power to live the way you want. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Okay, you ready to go? Uh, I would love to take this a chapter at a time, but uh, Chris told me that I had limited time. So for, for the sake of time, we're going to focus on Paul's introduction in the first few verses. And I want to begin by looking at those. If you have your Bibles open, the first question I want to ask you is, who wrote the book? All right, you all know? I've already said it, right? That's easy. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, uh, in ancient days, the writer of a letter always opened their letter with their name. When the Greeks would write a letter, they always said who it was from first. And today, you know what we do? What do we do? Just the opposite, right? We tend to identify ourselves at the end. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get a letter from someone, what's the first thing I do? I check at the end of the letter. I want to see who it's from. I think the Greeks had a better idea. They would identify the author first. So Paul identifies himself as the writer of this letter. Now, one other quick point of interest. Although the Apostle Paul is responsible for the content, he didn't write it with his own hand. Did you know that? According to Romans 16.22, he dictated this letter to his helper and friend named Tertius. Romans 16.22, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. You see, Paul didn't have a laptop computer. He didn't have a word processor to fine-tune every sentence. He spoke as the Spirit moved him. And I can picture Paul pacing back and forth, dictating this letter to Tertius as he was putting his thoughts down on paper. No, I think it was papyrus. But Paul was the human author, and Tertius was his helper, his secretary. But God was the divine inspiration behind Romans. Number two, to whom was it written? Do you know? Answer, the church at Rome, right? Look at verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Could I ask you something? What does it mean to be called a saint? Did you know that to be a saint simply means to be a Christian? In the New Testament, people were rarely called Christians. The most common term for Christian in the Bible is saints. Now, you might be thinking, I ain't a saint. And I know that ain't good English. But the Bible says, listen, the Bible says, if you are a Christian, you are a saint. So would you turn to the person next to you? Would you introduce yourself and say, hi, I'm Saint so-and-so. Would you do that right now? Go ahead. Go ahead. Say that. All right, come back. Come back to me. This church has way too much fun. Now, didn't that make you feel better about yourself? See, the point is this. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians who were in Rome. Now, again, it's important to note that Paul had never been to Rome. That's why the book of Romans is different from the other letters he wrote. In other letters, he would plant a church, but he didn't know that many people in Rome. He lists a few in chapter 16. So the question is, how in the world did the church in Rome get started? 
Well, most likely there were some converts of Paul from other cities who went to Rome. When they got there, they started some small groups and they began to grow and soon they had an established church. Now, the next question I want to ask is this. When was it written? The answer? While Paul was in Corinth. Paul made three missionary journeys around the Mediterranean, planting churches, each of them taking a number of years. He'd go into a certain area, spend anywhere from six months to two years. He would start a church, get it growing, and then move on to another one. Paul, on his third missionary journey, had made it all the way to Greece. He had started in Jerusalem. He went to Tyre and Sidon and across the Balkan Peninsula, and he comes all the way down to Corinth. And in Romans chapter 16, we read about a guy named Gaius. Gaius was a wealthy businessman in Corinth, and Paul spent several months staying in the home of this businessman who became a believer. And while he was there, he penned the book of Romans. Now, here's the most important question. Why was this letter written? Well, there are at least three reasons. There was a personal reason. Paul wanted to introduce himself to those in Rome. He was preparing them for his upcoming visit. He intended to come to Rome, so as a common courtesy, he says, I want you to know I'm coming. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Don't you appreciate it when someone's coming over to your house that they let you know that they're coming and they don't just drop by? That's why he wrote this. He wanted to let them know he was coming. Secondly, there was a pastoral reason. Paul wanted to clarify the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. He wanted to define the meaning of justification by faith. Now, I'm going to talk about that more in a moment. But look at chapter 15, verse 15. Paul says, I have written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again because of the grace of God that God gave me. Romans has been called the Christian's Constitution. Let me ask you, how many of you have read or you're at least familiar with the Constitution of the United States. Would you raise your hands? Well, that's great. If you haven't, it might be a good idea to do that, especially with what's going on in Washington these days. Now, Paul is writing the Constitution of the Christian life, and he's reminding us of some basic truths we all need to know and understand in order to gain right standing with God and grow in our relationship with God. Now, there was a third reason, and this was a practical reason. Romans was sort of like a fundraising letter. Paul wrote Romans to enlist support for his trip to Spain. Look at verse 22 of chapter 15. This is why I have often been hindered in coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. When I go to Spain, I hope to visit you and have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is hoping that he gets some financial support from the Romans to go to Spain where he wanted to preach the gospel and plant a church. Let me ask you, did he ever get there? Probably not. Maybe, but we know that he was put to death in Rome. So Paul wrote Romans to solicit support to his first trip to Spain. Now, with all that in the background, what I want to do is look at the main reason Paul sent this letter to Rome. What's the main point of Romans? Obviously, if you've read it, it's the gospel. He tells us that in the first chapter, and he explains why he's going to spend the rest of Romans talking about it. Look at Romans 1, 15, and 16. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, would you stop with me and think about that for a moment? What is Paul saying here? 
Paul says that the gospel is the power of God. Not that it simply contains the power of God or channels the power of God, but he says the gospel in and of itself is the power of God. Now I want you to think about what that means for a moment. The gospel is the one thing in the New Testament other than Jesus himself that is referred to directly as the power of God. And that's incredibly important and it explains why Paul is so passionate about preaching the gospel. You know, right now, my wife and I are in a series in our small groups. We're actually in two groups and both of the groups are studying the book of Romans. Um, Pastor J.D. Greer has done a a series on Romans. Uh, Do you have Right Now Media here? You do, right? It's on Right Now Media. You might want to check it out. He's also written a book entitled Christian Essentials, The Heart of the Gospel in Ten Words. And Pastor J.D. is very helpful in making the meaning of this clear. He says, when dynamite was invented in the 18th century, its name was derived from the Greek word here for power. Now, Paul didn't know anything about dynamite. But I think it's still a good image of what the gospel is all about. The gospel is God's power to redeem, to heal, to bring back from the dead. The gospel is not about New Year's resolutions. The gospel is about the solution to our sin. It's not a new strategy for living. It's about getting right with God and receiving new life in Christ. It's the power of God for your salvation and also for your transformation. And when you grasp the gospel, you are plugging into the greatest power source in the world. Notice Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Circle those words in your Bible. Paul makes no apologies for his message or his ministry. In fact, Paul gets to the very heart of it all. Paul wanted to witness the unleashing of the power of God through the preaching of the gospel because for the apostle, the gospel was central to everything in our lives. And let me just say, the gospel is central to everything in your life as well. You know, sometimes I wonder if we really understand how powerful the gospel really is. I mean, to be honest, it sounds so simple. It seems almost too good to be true. But Paul was willing to live his life and even give his life for his belief in the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is so powerful, it will blow you away. The gospel really is like a stick of spiritual dynamite. If you light the fuse of the gospel with faith, it has the power to set your heart on fire. Now, we all know under certain circumstances, dynamite can have a devastating effect. Have you ever watched a video of professionals blowing up a building? I mean, I'm always amazed and in awe when I watch this large stadium or a building imploding. Dynamite is used to demolish old, worn-out structures and pave the way for new construction. And that's precisely the way the gospel works in the hearts of people. The gospel has the power to shatter every barrier of belief. It has the power to overcome evil in your heart. When the gospel is proclaimed, hearts and lives are changed. And if you have ever experienced the power of the gospel, and I can tell many of you have, you know it makes a huge difference. And Paul wanted to see this explosive power of God unleashed in the church in Rome. He had seen it happen in other churches and other places. And now he wanted it to happen in Rome. So I want to say again, I want to say it to you, and I'll probably say it multiple times, so if you get tired of it, I apologize. The gospel is powerful, and there's an inseparable link between the prayer-filled preaching of the gospel and the power of God to change the hearts and minds of people. And by the way, nothing else will do that Your programs and your ministries won't do that. Your facilities won't do that. None of that. The power to get us right with God and to give us new life and the power to live the Christian life comes from the preaching of the gospel. And Paul says it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Let me ask you, what is salvation? 
Well, first of all, it's the forgiveness of our sins, but it's such, so much more than that. The basic meaning of the word is deliverance. It was used to describe a physician who healed an illness. The word carries with it the Hebrew word of wholeness or healing in the here and now, as well as being rescued in the future. Uh, let me say it this way. In the gospel, God rescues you from his wrath and puts you on the path to spiritual recovery. Let me say it another way. God has not only rescued you from hell, that in itself would be enough, right? But he has also given us all we need to get well. And the ultimate healing will have to wait till we get to heaven. But in the meantime, God has placed us on the road to recovery right now in the here and now. And if you want to get well, the gospel is the way you get there. You've got to believe and receive the gospel if you want to receive the cure. It's, it's kind of like a pill that your doctor prescribes for you when you're ill. The label on the bottle will give you instructions on when and how to take it. But reading the instructions won't heal you, right? You've got to take the medicine. And in a similar way, the gospel doesn't just give you instructions on how to change. It is in itself the power to change. Uh, I've often heard it said that the Old Testament rules and regulations found in the Bible are kind of like railroad tracks. They show you where you should go, but they can't get you there. Have you ever felt like that when you read the Bible and try to live the Christian life? I mean, you try so hard to be a good person, but you can't quite get there. How many say, I want to be a good person? Would you raise your hand? You all want to be good people, right? But nothing shows how bad you are than when you try to be good. In fact, if you think you're basically a good person, it's because you've never really tried that hard to be good. I mean, I want you to think about this. Try to be good in your heart for a day or even an hour. Try to live an entire afternoon without jealousy or envy or lust in your heart or some other sin. How many times have I been frustrated with my lack of love for others? It's so easy for me to love myself. Have you found it's easy to love yourself? But it's so hard to love other people. A few years ago, my wife and I went back to the very place where God revealed to me my sinful self-centeredness. I stood in the auditorium where I received an award for my selfless, sacrificial service. It was called, of all things, the Service Above Self Award. But for me, it was anything but selfless. I remember at the beginning of the school year, our class was told they were going to recognize the student who had served their classmates unselfishly throughout the year. So you know what I did? I decided I was going to win that award. Now, imagine trying to work for a service above self award. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? <laughs> well, I, I tried as hard as I could. And you know what? It worked. At the end of the year, we all gathered together to celebrate graduation. I remember when the president of the college came up on the stage to announce the winner of the Service Above Self Award. And sure enough, he called out my name. And as I walked up on the stage, the entire student body stood to their feet. They were actually giving me a standing ovation. But as I took the trophy and began walking off the stage, God spoke to me and said, David, you are a hypocrite. You haven't been serving others. You've only been serving yourself. You see, I was viewed as a committed, selfless Christian, but I knew in my heart I wasn't. I was committed to me. Well, it wasn't long, and I became frustrated, and that's when God really began working in my heart. Now, more about that in a minute. Let me say it again. The reason some of you think you're good is you've never really tried that hard to be good. You thought theoretically, oh, yeah, I can do this. It's kind of like me watching uh, Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or any of the other great quarterbacks and say, you know, I could do that. I mean, who couldn't do that? Then you go to practice and, I mean, if I got hit once, it would be over. 
I mean, that's the way it is, right? Now, I think I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, Pastor Dave, I get it. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. Mark and Chris have been telling me that just about every single Sunday. Thank you for doing that. So some of you, you've heard it so often, you just kind of check out in church. And let me just say, if you are feeling that way, you probably have never really experienced the full power of the gospel. I want you to think about this. The Apostle Peter, in one of his letters, said that the angels longed to look into the gospel. Think about that. Think about how hard it would be to impress an angel. I mean, they watch God as he created the universe, but the thing they want to know more about is the love of God for lost people in the gospel. You know, we said this in Avon Lake. This was kind of one of our phrases. The gospel is both the doorway into the Christian life and the pathway through the Christian life. It's not just the power to save you. It has the power to help you live a godly life. And to experience the power of the gospel, you've got to go, listen, listen to me. It's not just what gets you saved. The gospel is the power to help you obey God day by day. This is why Martin Luther said to progress in the Christian life is to begin again. In other words, you, you want to move forward in your walk with God, then you have to go backward. You've got to go back to the gospel again and again and again. We never grow out of the gospel. We have to receive it and we have to relearn it. We have to rehear it. We have to rehearse it every single day of our lives as as. Uh, Chris just said a little while ago, the gospel is the fuel that lights our hearts on fire with the desire to follow Christ. And that's why Paul says that the gospel comes from faith to faith. How did you experience the power of Christ in your life? You came to Jesus believing you couldn't save yourself and God had to do it, right? And faith in Christ is what first connected you to God's power and returning to the gospel will keep you connected to that power so that whatever is broken in your life, the answer is to believe the gospel. Now, what's the gospel? The gospel is this, that Jesus lived a sinless life for you and then died in your place to pay for your sin debt. And now, if you receive him and believe him, you couldn't be more loved and acceptable to God than you are right now. And ultimately, that it is his power and his power alone that can save you and can change you. And when you really believe that, it will change you. And that's why I say the gospel is not only the doorway into the Christian life, but the pathway through the Christian life. It's not just the way you get saved. It's the way we stay saved. You see, here's a problem that I've noticed in a lot of churches. This was true in Avon Lake. Maybe it's true here too. A lot of us think that being busy is the way we become godly. But busyness does not equal godliness. I know growing up, my church didn't intentionally teach this, but I just assumed, like most people, that staying busy meant that you were spiritually mature. The godliest people were the busiest. They were always striving to reach the next rung on the spiritual ladder. And, you know, I tried that for a while, and the result was I was exhausted and felt empty. The more I tried to force myself to obey Jesus, the less my heart was in it. It's sort of like me going bowling. Last evening, afternoon, my son-in-law and my daughter asked us if we wanted to go bowling. And I lied and said I did. <laughs> I, I hate bowling. <laughs> now, what I appreciated is that we got one of those lanes with the bumpers on the side. That, they said it was for the kids, but as they watched me, they realized it really was for me. You know, I have good intentions. I stand there. And I look down, and I'm trying to get that ball to go right down and hit the headphone on, on the right side so we can get a strike. It never did. 
you know, it's just, I, I have good intentions. I can't get the ball to go in the right direction. That's the way it is with the gospel. The gospel gets you going in the right direction. Do you understand that? And it keeps you growing in the right direction. Okay, let me get more specific so I don't go too long here. What's so great about the gospel? Let me give you three quick things. First of all, the gospel really is good news. Amen? In the first century, if an emperor won a battle which secured peace and established his rule, he would send heralds, messengers, with a gospel to declare victory, peace, and authority. Gospel meant announcing the victory. Well, in the book of Romans, the gospel is the announcement that Jesus has won the victory for us by overcoming sin. It's not an invitation for you to come and fight the battle with him. It's the good news that the battle has already been won because of what God has done. Amen? Second, it gives us what God requires from us. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. What did Paul mean by the righteousness of God? Well, here Paul is getting at the heart of it all. The word righteousness refers to a right relationship with God based on a commitment to do what is right. And Paul reveals that that, this relationship is not something that you and I can earn by our own efforts. It is a gift God gives to those who place their faith in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. I am declared right with God through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And maybe that's not new to you. I hope it isn't. But it really is good news, isn't it? Amen? Paul was answering the most important question you could ever ask. How can sinful people become acceptable to holy God? Is it by being good? Listen, there is a ton of people out there that still think that they can earn a relationship with God by being good. And so they focus on being devout and religious and coming to church and giving to charity. They think if they keep the rules, God will consider them righteous and acceptable. There's one problem. No one agrees on what the rules are. There are so many different ways that people try to be good. But as we will see, Paul answers this question from a different perspective. Paul knew that we are all guilty and God is absolutely holy. He realized that a right relationship with God was not something we can achieve by our own efforts. It's something we simply receive through the work and efforts of another, Jesus Christ. Right standing with God is a gift that comes through faith in his finished work. Now, Paul will spell that out in great, greater detail in the rest of his letter. Could I, I say this again because uh, I need to hear it at least today. Jesus Christ lived the life that you should have lived and I should have lived and haven't. And then he died the death we deserve to die. And praise God, Jesus is alive. That's what we're celebrating this coming week. This is Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday here. Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. You talk about humility. Think about that for a moment. Jesus was the king of kings and lord of lords, but he gave up everything for you and me. And then on Good Friday, he went to the cross and died in our place. But he didn't stay dead because on the third day, on Easter Sunday, he came back from the grave alive again. And the reason he was raised from the dead was so that we could be forgiven, gain right standing with God, and go to be with him in heaven. That's the way we get right with God. And I want to say that over and over again. The way you get right with God is the way you stay in right relationship with God. From the starting blocks of faith to the finish line, faith in Christ is what counts. And as you learn that, you will also learn that even your faith was a gift from God. Not something that you simply decided to do. It was a gift God gave you. Right standing with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. 
And that's why Paul was so excited about the gospel. The good news is out. What we do is we don't do anything. We simply receive what Jesus has done for us, and he will enable us to do everything. So let me just say, if you're struggling with your faith, the answer is not trying harder. It's going deeper into your dependency on the gospel. I remember when I retired, I cleared out my office, and I had a few personal things on my wall, plaques and pictures of various people and places. There was a picture of my wife, when we first came to Anchor Church nearly two decades ago, there was a picture of me baptizing my daughter, Julie. What a privilege that was. There was a gigantic picture of the names of Jesus, but the most meaningful memory comes from something my son Jason gave me. He gave it to me after he had taken a class in Greek in college, and he wrote out Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 18 in his own handwriting in Greek. And it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You know, back in the day, there was a familiar phrase that I think was coined by President Bill Clinton. Are you familiar with him? He said, when it comes to politics, it's the economy, stupid. By the way, that's still true today, isn't it? I wish the Biden administration would learn that lesson, but I'm I'm not into politics. I'm a pastor. But, (laughs) But my point is this. When it comes to spiritual things, It's the gospel, stupid. It's all about the gospel. And if you get that right, everything else will go right. So, and I'm getting almost to the end. So as you read through Romans, there are three terms you need to learn. And if you've already learned them, you need to relearn them. You may want to write them down. The first one is justification. You know what justification means? It means to be counted or declared righteous in God's sight, through the righteous life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. The second word is sanctification. Have you heard this word before? This refers to the Christian life, now that we've been set right with God. God has not only rescued us from our sin and his wrath, but he has put us on the path to recovery. He doesn't just save us from hell. He's given us, as I said, everything we need to get well. Now, please listen closely to this because so many of God's people don't get this. The power behind sanctification is the same power that brought our justification. The gospel that sets you right in God's sight is the gospel that will empower you and enable you to live a godly life. And I wish I could say more about this one because so many in the church miss this. The only thing that will enable you to live a godly life is to go back, rehear, rebelieve, rehearse the gospel every single day of your life. Finally, the third word is glorification. Have you heard this word? This will only happen when we get to heaven. In heaven, our sin nature will be gone for good. Won't that be great? I've heard it said this way. Justification removes the penalty of sin. Sanctification enables us to deal with the power of sin in our lives. And glorification is where God removes the presence of sin from our lives. And I encourage you, don't be scared away by these terms. We need to rehear them and relearn them. Justification, God declares you righteous. Sanctification, because of what Christ has done, he will begin to make you righteous. And glorification, someday, will have no sin at all in our hearts and lives. Amen? Third one, it gives you confidence. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said, if you understand what Jesus has done for you, you will not be able to keep it quiet. You'll be whispering it in your child's ear. You will be telling your husband or wife and earnestly sharing it with your friends. And maybe, just maybe, the reason we've never done that consistently is we've never really experienced the power of the gospel. It's just an intellectual concept. So, let me wrap this up. 
with a few final thoughts. Here's the first one. These are truths to take home. Number one, understanding the gospel unlocks the door to all of Scripture. You won't understand the Bible unless you understand the gospel. The Old Testament points us toward the gospel, and the New Testament always brings us back to the gospel. The gospel is the key that unlocks the door to our understanding of every single chapter and verse in the Bible itself. Secondly, rehearsing the gospel is indispensable to your personal growth. Paul's prayer for the Romans was that they grow deeper in the gospel. And that's my prayer for you here at Carroll Church. I pray that you will understand how great and powerful the gospel really is to set you right and help you live right with God. And I might add, it's the way you really want to live as well. And then one last point. I hope you understand this one. And it's kind of ending on a negative note, but if you listen, you'll understand why I'm saying this. Without the gospel, we'd all be in trouble. Anybody say amen to that? Recently, my wife and I returned from a trip out west. Julie and Chris and the kids went out to San Clemente, California, and we went, too, to see our other kids that live on the coast. We spent some wonderful time. There's so many memories. But after they were gone, my wife and I headed up to Las Vegas, Nevada, to hear Donny Osmond live in the Vegas Strip. Now, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask this, but how many of you, how many here, raise your hand, be honest with me, you don't know who Donny Osmond is. Would you raise your hands? Yeah, I, I, th- I thought so. Now, I know this will give my age away, but he was the heartthrob of every girl in high school and college. And he's still alive. He's in his 60s, and he is doing an absolutely amazing show. It brings tears to my eyes and chills down my spine. You remember Puppy Love? Anybody remember that song? Okay. Now, we have never been to Las Vegas before, and after being there, we have no desire to go back. There are three words that come to mind when I think of Las Vegas. The first is delightful. Las Vegas has everything the world could ever offer and more. Have you been there? There are five-star hotels and restaurants and entertainment galore. So in that sense, we like being there. The second word is decadent. Walking through the hotels, we saw the extravagance of a life we could only imagine living and really didn't want to live. But everything in Las Vegas is expansive and expensive. And the third word that comes to my mind is depraved. You can find every kind of vice anyone could ever imagine. They don't call it Sin City for nothing. And as I walked down the strip and saw things I didn't want to see, it made me sad and made me angry. I thought, how could people be so blind to participate in such darkness and depravity? But then God stopped me and spoke to me, and he reminded me that I'm a sinner just like them. May not have done the same things. You understand that? Hopefully you haven't. But all of us are sinners, right? We're all sinking in the same boat. But thank God, Jesus came to rescue and redeem us, and when we trust in him, he not only forgives us of our sins, but he gives us his righteousness, imputes it to us as a gift. We are right with God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And when you believe that, it not only changes your status with God, it changes your hearts within us. Amen? And that's the good news I wanted to share with you today. That's why I say to you, I need the gospel just as much today as the day I was saved. And could I add, so do you. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, 
I just want to encourage you just to take some time to pause and ponder what Christ has done for you. His life that was lived and the death that he died so that you might be justified. And if you're a Christian, thank God for that and just keep returning to it and relearning it and rehearsing it in your mind. And you watch God's power continue to work. And if you've never come to faith in Christ, I invite you to put your faith in him now. He's here. He's promised to work through his word in the gospel. And I invite you to trust in him today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Help us to continue to grow in our love for the gospel, in our love for you. We pray that as we leave today, that you will continue to work in our hearts. Now as we take communion, just remind us again of your love and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.